Welcome to the Jungian Theology Podcast from the C.J. Jung Institute of Chicago. For the next month, Jung in the World is presenting a series on Marriott Woodman, Canadian mythopoetic author, poet, analytical psychologist, and women's movement figure. In this episode, Patricia Martin interviews Dr. David Clark, professor in the Department of English and Cultural Studies and associate member of the Department of Health, Aging, and Society at McMaster University. Also for this series in particular, we'll see how it goes for future episodes, we'll be sharing the interviews, um, the video recordings of the interviews on YouTube, and the links to those will be in the show notes. Um, There's also going to be a uh, suggested reading list if you're interested in learning more about Marion Woodman and and reading some of her work, you can look at the uh, book list that will also be in the show notes. I also want to make sure that I thank Avery Kirschbaum, who's been our intern over this summer, and he has just done an excellent job helping out getting all of these interviews done, moving files around, putting the book list together, and just lots of other stuff. He's been really wonderful. So now I'll leave it to Patricia Martin to introduce David. Hello, this is uh, Patricia Martin, and I'm your host today at Jungian Anthology's podcast series, Jung in the World, where we explore the living legacy of Carl Jung's ideas to make meaning of the complexities of contemporary culture. Today, we have another episode devoted to the legacy of Marian Woodman, a Jungian analyst and a prolific writer who practiced in Toronto as an analyst in the 1980s. With us is David Clark, a professor of literature and a former friend and colleague of Marianne Woodman's. He has also written essays about her work, and he's a professor at the Department of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University. As an associate member of the Department of Health, Aging, and Society, he teaches about critical theory, animal studies, and the history of the HIV AIDS activism movement. He was for many years a co-editor of the Review of Education, Pedagogy, and Cultural Studies, and we are so thrilled to have him here with us today to tell us about his relationship with Marion Woodman, and I'm I'm keying off a lot, uh, David, about your um, essay that you wrote in a collection of essays, which, by the way, we'll link at the bottom. Um, It was called The Last Temptation of Marion Woodman. First of all, I just wanna, let me say welcome. Thank you, Patricia, thank you very much. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about, about Marianne. And, um, you know, I, I, I love Marianne very much and I miss her dearly. Well, uh, I think you're one in many who feel the same way. She was a woman who, um, she had a big wild heart. <laughs> And, uh, and, yes. and, a, and a relentless curiosity about how the world worked and, and especially seeing that world through uh, a, a Jungian lens. So I'm, I'm dying to know, you know, as I talk to people, many of them have these larger than life stories <laughs> about Marion Woodman. And I would love you to just give us a description of her and, you know, how, how you met her. Let, tell, tell us the introduction in your life to Marion Woodman. Well, you know, uh, looking back now, it's funny for, for a figure who has loomed so large in my life, my intellectual life, my psychic life, uh, 
uh, I can't actually remember the day that I met Marion. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that's mostly because I, I felt like she's always been with me. You know, if, if she hadn't come into my life, I would have had to have invented her somehow. Uh, you know, that's how I, I view her as she was so important and is still so important to me. But I, I know that I, I must have met her uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s when I started uh, graduate school under the supervision of uh, Dr. Rosswood and Marion's um, husband. And um, and 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 uh, our re relationship uh, changed over the years. Uh, it grew and deepened and and uh, complicated. Um, but she was always a, a kind of formidable uh, character to me. Somehow, sort of paradoxically, uh, very powerful uh, and extraordinarily uh, charming. Uh, and, um, and, and, and loving, convivial and loving. Mm -hmm. And so there was this kind of mixture uh, in, in her, in her uh, presence. And I was, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of a spellbound. But, you know, Patricia, to be honest, I mean, just to, to paint a, 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 a picture here, for a while, I, I was a little bit afraid of her, to really, to be frank about it. I, I, I did feel something like fear, um, not that she was intimidating or scary or anything like that, far from it, but it really is something to be in the presence of somebody who is genuinely charismatic. I've met so few people that I could characterize that way in my long life, but here was a, here was a character who, who, who was charismatic, and I I, uh, my instinct was to be wary of that, to be, you'd be careful not to be drawn into the orbit of somebody uh, that who is charismatic. And of course that all in the end proved to be completely, complete nonsense. I mean, Marion wasn't interested in pulling people into her orbit, but you know, as somebody coming to her for the first time, that's, that's partly how I, how I felt. And, uh, and she was, you know, to, to be in her presence was to be with someone and to be seen and heard. That's, oh, in a sense, my was most- Was that part of her charisma? That, that was exactly the heart of the like charisma. It was like a tractor beam? Yeah. <laughs> like you, we all want to be seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And you come into the presence of somebody who really does see and hear you. And you sort of realize how, how rare those creatures are in life. Mm -hmm. And that's what she did. She threw into relief the relative impoverished, relatively impoverished nature of the kinds of relationships that I had with other people, friendships, family, that sort of thing. And so that was, you know, incredibly attractive, but also uh, unnerving. <laughs> oh, I think that's fascinating because, you know, as I look at the breadth of, of writing that she did and how people wrote about her and their experiences with her, it was very clear to me that, you know, Carl Jung, needed a cadre of people who could explain his work because he was a pioneer, first of all, and he was writing in, in abstractions. And because you're a professor of literature, you know, abstractions don't get you very far. Yeah, <laughs> people yeah. really need to understand what you're trying to say. And so there was a role that people like Marion Woodman played 
in interpreting the work of Carl Jung. And for Marion, it was really and truly, it seems to me, about body and soul, meaning she didn't approach it as an intellectual. She approached it as a sentient, feeling, compassionate human being. And that had to be radiant for other people to be in her orbit. Yes, and 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 I, I think you're exactly right. And, and and after all, one of the things that really fascinated and worried her to her last uh, days was that we live in a culture that is so uh, frenetically devoted to disembodying us, uh, to separating out uh, soma and, and and psyche, and to administering those realms in our lives with this kind of policing normative control. And so you come across a character like Marianne Woodman, who is you know, devoted uh, to the integration of these things uh, and, um, and, and says to you basically, uh, without looking for acolytes, uh, you know, she wasn't just somebody who was looking for disciples or anything like that, but she was sort of modeling something and sort of constantly challenging you. What would it be like if you thought about yourself this way? What would you need to endure? uh and embrace um to more to live a more sort of fully integrated a more conscious to use her kind of language jung's language a more conscious life and to me that was always the the challenge of being with her like sitting across from the dinner table and and realizing that you were in the presence of somebody who was in a sense was there to, to to challenge and challenge and challenge you your your deepest assumptions about what it is to be a, a, a human being. And so while there was lots of small talk with, with Mary, and of course, you know, there's so many memories, lovely, lovely, lovely memories of sitting with her and having a cup of tea. And, uh, but, but in the background, if not in the foreground, was this powerful sense that what we were doing was existentially important. Uh, that, you know, what we dreamt how we taught, how we loved, how we were loved, uh, that, you know, for Marianne, it was always the raising the stakes, raising the stakes. And, uh, and, and so you had to get on board with that. And, you know, the, the remarkable thing was that Ross, who you know, was my mentor, my doctoral supervisor, was exactly the same way. He, he and, and Marianne were very different characters, to be sure. But for them, the stakes were always very high. And um, and that made for you know an exciting, uh, loving friendship, but also pretty exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, her her energies seemed to be uh, irrepressible. Yes, and you know she did these workshops, these somatic workshops, and the she created these rituals so that people could really get some awareness, some idea about themselves, or some transformational concept really into their bones. And so you pick up and write about um, the book she wrote during her bout with cancer, where she was facing really life or death. And back in those days, there weren't as many solutions to cancer. So it was a yeah. very serious life-threatening illness. So I, I'm completely fascinated by how you looked at her not only that that memoir i think i could call it a memoir mm -hmm. right about yes, that yes. section of her life yeah. and um 
you kind of took it apart in a way that you really start, started to ask questions about our relationship, the psyche's relationship to uncertainty and what a transformational experience really is and how Marion was really, in a way, born into another version of herself through enduring that. And I, I might be stealing your thunder by just sort of, you know, I'm expounding all, all this without asking you the question, but I, I really think there's something rich in this for our listeners because, because we live in this era of very deep uncertainty. And no, no, I think we do live in, a, in an age of uncertainty, although, and th this is the crux of the matter, I think, uh, and that is we're, we're also haunted by uh, um, this will to, to certainty at all costs. This, you know, it's true, terrible uncertainties. I mean, just look, I don't know what the temperature is like in Chicago, but in Toronto today, I mean, if you don't believe in, in climate change, you know, just come to Toronto. It's like living in a microwave, you know. And, um, you know, there's lots of uncertainty, and I see it in the faces of my students. You know, if you're 17 or 18 years old right now and, and you're looking down the barrel of a big gun and uh, part of what it is to be a teacher now is to try to absorb that feeling, that sadness, that sense of loss, of directionlessness, of uncertainty. Yes, yes. But of course, in the vacuum created by uncertainty rushes, as we know, the, the politics of absolute certitude that the world can be you know, disciplined and, and um, policed in a certain way, and it has to be this way. And, um, and one of the things I deeply ad admired about, about Marianne was that, and, and I, I feel it was you know, folded into the texture of her memoir, as you so well put it, uh, is this, this um, decision to wrestle on a, literally on a day-by-day -day basis, because as you know, the book is you know, uh, divided into days over the course of about two years. And um, uh, to wrestle on a day-to-day -day basis with the, with the uncertainty, but also with the temptation of certitude. And no one can gainsay, you know, the, the, the need and the desire for certainty in the midst of a mortal illness, especially this illness, the, the uh, cancer of the lining of the uterus, in those days where the treatment options were horrifying. Uh, medieval, as one of her dear friends put it at the, at the time and that Marianne records. And so one of the things that really I sort of tried to key into in that memoir was that the, the book was very much embodied. It made perfect sense that this um, analyst friend healer who says so much and so, and so powerfully uh, about uh, the importance of living an, an embodied life uh, a, a fully and complexly embodied life. It made perfect sense to me that the book that she wrote about herself would, its, would itself be uh, replete with the signs of being embodied, which for, for me is a condition, in, intrinsically a condition of uncertainty. So you said earlier, and what triggered me to go in this direction was you, you talked about sometimes it was exhausting to be in Marion's presence. Yes. And what's brilliant about not only your essay about her book, Bone, The Dying Into Life, but that this what is this idea of uh, uncertainty as a moment when we can almost relax into it. 
it's not an energetic moment for the soul or the body, you know, to, to face its own potential demise or to face the world's demise as, as you talked about earlier. I mean, that's the big gun that people are looking down the barrel of is how much time do we have left on this planet? Yes. And so it, with all this in the collective, I think to myself, well, what, 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 you know, what's to be done for us. And you kind of go into this in your essay, you talk about prayer and the nature of prayer in the midst of uncertainty. I thought that was fascinating. Well, well, it, uh, uh, thank you. I mean, it's, uh, uh, the, the reason why prayer is so important to my discussion of her and my reading of her, my understanding of her, is, is that, I, uh, first of all, I see the book as a kind of prayer. It's written in the mode of a prayer. And as an English professor, of course, the very first question you ask and that you ask your first year students to ask when they come across literature is, what is the genre? What kind of thing is this? Um, uh, what sort of category does it fall into? And, you know, uh, Marion's bone is lo lots of different things. It's a love letter to her husband, to, to Ross, to, to be sure. It's uh, also a, uh, uh, the tale of a, of a wounded storyteller. Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, I and, uh, of that. That's yeah. a whole that's and you know that's a whole genre of literature of the of the wounded storyteller. Yep. There are other examples that I think were present in Marianne's mind when she was writing this and preparing it for publication. But at another level, I do think that it's a kind of prayer, a prayer to to, to Sophia. And the reason why I think it's a prayer, I mean, there are literally moments in which Marianne does uh, pray in 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 the text. But the larger reason why why I would characterize it generically, genre, in terms of genre. As, as a prayer is this, is that prayer as such is a, um, a gesture of openness to the unknown. If, if we got what we prayed for, <laughs> it wouldn't be a prayer anymore. The, the element of the prayer is that it's, uh, it is, it's, it's unfurled in a condition of radical uncertainty. Um, that, that, I think, is what the, the essence of prayer is. It's a kind of um, openness. And by God, that takes courage. Mm -hmm. Truly to pray. And I do think human beings pray every day in lots of different ways. You don't have to be a religious person or belong to a faith community to pray. I pray. I, I don't. I don't belong to a faith community. I'm not a religious person, but I can tell you I pray every day which is to say, I uh, try my best to leave myself open to uncertainty. You, you, there are things that one has to be more or less certain about and to prepare for, yes, but the best laid plans carry with them uh, an earlier moment uh, of indecision. Um, not the indecision that we often associate with Hamlet, you know, which is in fact a decision. Hamlet decides to be indecisive. Mm -hmm. You know, that'd be one way of thinking of him. Oh, I don't read. You, you quote him. You quote him. Yeah. You say the readiness is all. The readiness is all. Stay, let's keep getting ready. Let's keep we, getting we, ready. We shall never launch, but we'll just be really ready to launch. To, 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 to be ready, and that takes a, a, a lot to to refuse the temptation too quickly to come to a decision. Mm -hmm. One does need to come to a decision, 
but it's the earlier part, the moment of, of stillness and and uh, the, the pause of indecision. It's the, the analogy that comes to mind uh, for, for me, and, and Marianne and I talked about this at one point, is you know, there's a wonderful fragment by Kafka. It, it's basically the, like a little tiny short story of the sort that he, he could write. And he's writing about Olympic level swimmer. And the swimmer succeeds and the crowds are delirious. And, and the swimmer stands there on the podium after this extraordinary accomplishment in, in, in a pool or a river, I don't know what it is. And all the swimmer can think about is, once upon a time, I couldn't swim. I, I had to learn how to swim. And that part of me that doesn't know how to swim, I carry in me always. I don't know how to swim, is what the character says in Kafka's fragment. I don't know how to swim. I'm an Olympic swimmer and celebrate it as such. But I'm telling you, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear of it, I don't know how to swim. And it's that I, I, I you know, it's like a, what I think about being a teacher is uh, the essence of being a teacher is not knowing how to teach. Every day I stand up in front of a class and I say to myself, I don't know how to teach. And that's what enables me to teach. That's what prevents me from settling into some programmatic idea of what a professor should be. And Mar Marion's work, Bone in particular, taught me to em em embrace that. I think that there's, I just want to unpack this for a minute because in it is this idea, the kernel of this idea about what it takes to be a teacher. And I think part, it takes, it takes a curiosity of, about the world and a curiosity about your own students that keeps you humble enough to be open to the lessons they have to teach you. And so what, so, you know, you just, you just phrase that so beautifully in terms of, Hey, there's a part of me that doesn't know how to teach. And I think uh, in, in Marion's work, you know, I, I was reading uh, in Deirdre Bear's award-winning biography of Carl Jung, mm. that she was in the first class of the Zurich Institute Boy. with luminaries. Her, her classmates were, you know, Murray Stein and uh, James Hillman <laughs> and June Singer. And mm. these became not only the acolytes of yes. Carl Jung, um, they real they became the apostles. They went they went out and wrote and talked about and did workshops and lectures to help carry the word forward in a way that people could understand. And so this business about Marion Woodman being a teacher, her her chosen pedagogy, I guess I would call it her her approach to it was to do these very uh, like somatic body centric experiential workshops that was way ahead of her time yes yes right there weren't yeah. she had no one to copy that from no. did she ever talk about what it meant to her to be a teacher well i think almost every conversation i ever had with her was in one way or another <laughs> about what it is to be a, a teacher and you know one of the, the wonderful things about because she was such a generous soul is that she was always interested in you know me becoming a teacher and that it was a process of becoming, that the one never became the teacher as such. That was important. Those are the people that you had to be really wary of. You know, for example, the fathers in the world that have, you know, claim in some way to have figured it all out. 
uh, no, no, you know, Marianne said, let's hold off from, from, from doing that. And let's, that's work. I mean, that's the word work, I think, uh, is underemphasized in Marianne's writing, what, what it means, what labor means. Mm -hmm. And, um, and moreover, an ongoing labor, not a task that can be finished, but a kind of project that is to be lived. And she, she constantly modeled for me, as indeed Ross did as well. I, I, from those two, from that couple, together and, and, and apart, uh, I, I really do owe this enormous debt in terms of my own growth, my ongoing growth. Here I am, a man in his mid-60s <laughs> and still learning how to teach, still very much in the process of learning how to teach. But it was Marion and, and Ross's examples that, uh, that encouraged me to just to, to let that happen, to, to, to make sure that I was uh, somebody who was still, that is to this day, still, still learning how to teach. And I did learn some, you know, in, in, in uh, some pedagogy from her, in fact, for example, in my large first year classes, so let's say I have 200, sometimes 250 students, and, you know, this in these huge banked, dark lecture halls, it's basically theater. Uh, like like a Greek tragedy in, in a way. <laughs> I mean, it's really what it feels like. Either that, or as I once said to Marianne, or this could be a, a, a an, you know an autopsy room, like a, a room where I'm um, I'm the the, the yeah, cadaver, an operating theater, <laughs> an operating theater, and, <laughs> and they're the surgeons. But in any case, one sort of flips back and forth between these images as you try to sort out what it means to teach and what to and to be taught. And what I do with my first year students now, because I think they're struggling to understand what literary knowledge is um, because of the uh, uh, the supremacy and the legitimacy that is attributed to other kinds of knowledges. Mm -hmm. First year students find it very, very difficult to even to grasp that there is such a thing as literary knowledge, mm -hmm. that it is a way of knowing. And, um, and so I get all 250 of them to stand up and recite, I throw up verses let's say a stanza from a Blake poem or an Emily Dickinson poem or a Sylvia Plath. And I throw that up on a screen and I get them to together in unison, say those lines once, twice, thrice. And you know, after each time I say, oh, come on, you can do better than that. I said, everybody put your hands on your chest. I want you to feel the breath going in and out of your bodies as you say these words, because these words are alive. They're not abstractions on a page. Mm -hmm. uh, they're bodies. Um, and you're in a body. So breathe life into them. And, uh, and it's amazing what that exercise, which is something that I learned from Marion, uh, it's amazing how that changes uh, one's relationship with literature. Oh, I can, I, I, I can picture this by the way, and I'm sure our listeners can too. And it seems to me that this understanding of literature as, as something that's life-giving versus uh, romantic poetry, it's, it's part of our legacy, our human legacy that could help us in these uncertain times to endure and that is another thing that I think is so profound about Marianne's book, Bone, and your treatment of it in your essay, The Last Temptation of Marianne Woodman, is to talk about enduring uncertainty, enduring 
something that has cannot deliver a result to you yet so that you must discern between am i finished is it happening where am i in in all of this i mean these are questions that haunt people yes. today yes so do you think that, that that some of the work of, um, you know, the poets, the the feelers more than the thinkers, are here to feed us during these times of uncertainty? Could you make a case for that? I I, I think I could, and I think I've I've staked my life on it. Wow. I I have staked my life on the chance that in that classroom, uh, someone will absorb those words and uh, that, they, that they will mean something, that they will feed into a hungry soul. And uh, th there's a lot competing for the attention of my students. <laughs> I mean, just to get them to put their phones down. You know, I'm of a generation where I can put my phone down. It's no big deal. I, I'd, in fact, I'd love to throw the damn thing away is what I'd <laughs> like to do. And, and if I had a chance, I, I, I would. But for my students, it's, it's, it, it's something else. They're, they're, you know, they're drawn to these things, these other things. And that's, you know, that comes with generational difference and, and fine. There, there must have been idiocies in my generation as well. I'm quite sure it was so long ago. I can't even remember now. But, sure. um, but, but yes, I, I, I've staked my life as a teacher and a teacher of literature in particular, literature and, and philosophy, on the, on the power of these words. And, on, and, and one way to measure their power is that it doesn't matter if they were written in 1800, uh, they, they, are, they are of, uh, uh, of, of such a power that they speak to students, they can speak to students today. That's what my role is in the classroom, is to let those words try as best as I can to let those words speak to the to these students and uh, to realize that literature is not these are not sort of beautiful shiny objects in a museum that one sort of peers at a kind of distance at uh, no they're they're living things and have to do with life and your life I'm looking right at you, <laughs> you know, as I yes. say to my, my students, you know, I, I walk straight after <laughs> them, look them in the eye, because that's what Marion would do, right. and what Ross would do. I'm looking at you. And in fact, I reach out sometimes and just rest my hand gently on a shoulder mm -hmm. of a student in a class of 200 students. Mm -hmm. As I'm talking to the class, my hand is just gently on the shoulder of a student to let them know that we are here, present, embodied, imperfect en route and that literature is the crucible the matrix the, as plato would say the cora the womb in in which something can happen we, there's no guarantee that that it will and god knows there are days in which nothing happens and you know marion gave me permission to survive those moments <laughs> you know, because she herself said that there were lots of times in, in her office in which with her annals ends and nothing happened. Right. And that's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay because we are constantly in the process of transformation. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it makes total sense to me that you and Marion 
saw so much in each other and had so much in common because, you know, Jung was, um, oh, he's famous for saying, you know, thank God I'm young and not a Jungian. And part of that was that he wanted to, he believed in experience. He believed in the experience of life, not the discussion of the experience of life. And that to really understand something, one must feel it. And, and, and endure it or, you know, subsume it and, 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 and relive it. H however, that is, there, there was truly uh, an element of his holding in very high regard this business of having an experience of life, that life was for living. Yes. And I think... And, and, sorry, do, do, do you see that the, this is one of the things that really attracted me to, to, to Bone was that there was a side of it that was uh, that Marian acknowledges that gives space to in her generosity. She gives space to the side of her that was uh, hooked on getting out of life. And you know, one of the ways we know in a kind of Judeo-Christian tradition in this part of the world, one of the ways in which you get out of life is you imagine a more refined life. In other words, you don't have to literally die. You just, you, you find yourself struggling to purge yourself of one life in order to live a subtler life. But that is itself life denying. And it's that life denying part of Marian. She gives a voice to that in bone, um, as well as a life affirming part. And it's that mixture, that subtle knot between those two things, the negotiation between those two things that really fascinated me about the book and that for me makes it a, a more truly embodied book, is that she, she, she isn't pitching herself as this uh, creature who had a kind of um, direct phone line to Sophia. Uh, no way. And that's why Sophia comes across sometimes as, uh, as rather harsh mother. Mm -hmm. In the book, you know, that, that Marianne finds herself apologizing to her and fe feeling um, characterizing Sophia as casting this kind of normative gaze on on Marianne. Mm -hmm. And so that such that Marianne felt like she had to apologize for not taking care of her body. Um, but that's only part of the book uh, that that's in the end, not the Sophia. I think that the book is finally addressed to. So uh, just for a second, for, for those people listening who might not be as familiar with uh, Sophia um, and you know her role in the whole Gnostic tradition, could you just spend a few sentences on her? Well, I, I, I feel embarrassed because I'm in the, the company of, uh, of you know, thinkers who know so much more. But I, what I do know from my conversations about Sophia with, with Marianne and certainly about how Sophia is characterized particularly in Bone, is that you know she's not some tr transcendental goddess, uh, you know so something out of the world. Uh, uh, there are aspects of her that sometimes feel like that, and that Marianne has her eye on it. A part of Marianne thinks that I'll, I'm going to get out of this life by hooking myself to that life. But when Sophia is most uh, complexly figured in the text, she's not a character or figure at all, but more like a, a field. Uh, a, a, a place in which to uh, come into a kind of consciousness. And remember that for, for Marianne, Sophia is not, um, not at the outside or at the end of time, not, at the, not another world, but is at the heart of this world. 
And that's why his, her relationship with Sophia is so often characterized as one of recollection. That, I, that the trick is in my life, Marianne, it's speaking of her own life and then the life of my annals ends, how can I help them remember the irrepressible presence of Sophia? Even though so many of us have lived a life in which you know, so much stuff is piled on top and to prevent any one of us from glim even glimpsing traces of a more fully embodied life. And so from, from in bone at least, that's how Sophia is, is characterized. Sometimes as a rather harsh mother, but more often um, as a, a space of acceptance. Um, and it's that it's the, the two versions of her and there are various expressions of those two versions, various characters, friends, you know, they're not friends at all. They're all parts of Sumerian psyche. The first lesson you teach first year students when you're, when you're reading a, 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 in class together, an autobiography, somebody is to remember that all of these characters in this person's autobiography are simply versions of the author of the author oh yeah the, the many selves the problem all of the, the many selves all the selves <laughs> you know who happened to have the you know david c as i'm called in the book you know, it rather discreetly but it's not me at all it's it's something it's a part of marion and marion is using those parts to to work through this struggle uh to uh acknowledge the presence of sophia and in in, in her life so in the end, if you had to tell us what you think Marion Woodman's legacy is, what would that be? What would you say? What did she leave behind for us? Wow, I, Patricia, that's a that's that's a very hard question to to, to to answer. It's not that there isn't an answer. It's just that it's so caught up with my embodied life <laughs> you know that, that i true about everybody though do can we only find meaning in anything because we feel it through our embodied life because it either makes sense to the life that we're living or the life we that other specialized life that we imagine for ourselves and everything just whirs past us otherwise it it does indeed and god knows i think we're living in an age well we are living in an age now called by scientists the great acceleration mm -hmm. um and you know i think they mean that in all it can be meant in all sorts of different ways i i guess you know one of the things that the, the really important things that marianne taught me was to uh listen because mm. i saw her listen and, uh, you know, until I had met her, I, I had heard about patients. I heard it was a good thing. I knew nothing about it. And, uh, but it was in the presence of Marianne that I think I started to learn, and I'm still learning, the, the, the patience that comes to be patient with oneself mm -hmm. and to patient, be patient with others, to be patient with knowledge. In other words, to resist the temptation to want to eat it up all at once or to purge parts of it, to get rid of it so that you could eat up something else. You know, these are all metaphors that really fascinated Marianne and that informed some of her embodied life, this desire to consume and to purge, to discipline the body. And 
you know, what Marianne taught me without teaching, in other words, I wasn't in a classroom with her, I was never her annals and. Uh, it was just simply being in her, her presence and observing what richness comes from, from listening. That, that's something I, I took away from her and I'm still taking away from her uh, to this very day. David, it's been such a pleasure to listen to you. And I, I'm pretty sure that others out there are feeling the same way. <laughs> you really brought a lot to uh, help paint the picture of who Marianne Woodman was and why she mattered, her work matters. I want to thank you for being on Young in the World. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I, re I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, archives, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thank you to our 2021 donors who gave at the contributing member level or above. The Arlene M. Feiner Trust, Barbara Anon, Arlo and Rena Compan, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Carl and Patricia Greer, Ryan Mayer, Patricia Martin, Boris Matthews, Sue Rosenthal, Diane Sherwood, Debbie Stutzman, Lawrence Chad Tingley, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, and Ellen Young. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by visiting our website, newchicago.org. Thanks.